This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Open Source Property by Stephen Clowney, James Grimmelman, Michael Grinberg, Jeremy Sheff, and Rebecca Tushnet. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to part two of the property lectures. In this lecture, we'll be talking about possession. So we will now discuss the ways in which the law protects owners in their possession of property. We begin with an overview of the historical system of claims and remedies that common law courts have devised to enforce this protection. We then turn to the most basic factual scenario in which such claims are brought, where the property of one person finds itself in the possession of another either by being lost and found or by being stolen, or both. We will next see how even wrongful possession can become lawful ownership or title through the doctrine of adverse possession. Finally, we will note two types of factual scenarios that complicate the rules governing the possessory right. First, where owners intentionally part with either possession or the right to possession as in bailments and liens. And second, where a third party comes into possession by purchasing property from a seller who, unbeknownst to the buyer, lacked legal authority to sell it, or the good faith purchaser. Now moving to property torts in real property. The name of the most familiar tort protecting real property, trespass, was originally the name of an entire family of actions that first emerged in the 12th and 13th centuries. A plaintiff would commence his case by going to the royal chancery and purchasing a writ commanding the defendant to come before the courts and explain why 
he had done a certain act against the plaintiff's rights. The Latin phrases used by the chancery clerks who filled out the writs and which the royal courts insisted on when hearing a case came to define individual forms of action. One of the earliest such formulaic phrases, and one with one of the longest careers in the common law, was trespass quarry clausum frigid, literally, why he broke the clothes, and often abbreviated to trespass QCF. The idea of the action was that the defendant wrongfully, with force, and arms, in Latin, vi et armis, and against the king's peace, had broken into the plaintiff's enclosed lands and caused injury. As in a trespass action for intentional battery, a plaintiff bringing an action for trespass QCF could obtain money damages to the extent of his injuries. Trespass QCF was the natural cause of action for damaging the plaintiff's crops or destroying his buildings. Another early formula, trespass de ejection firme, literally of ejection from his term, and often simply ejectment protected a lessee against being wrongfully invicted from his lands by an intruder. To the extent that the medieval legal mind made such a distinction, ejectment did not protect against injury, but against dispossession. By the 16th century, the common law courts would put a victorious plaintiff back in possession. This development made ejectment a potentially attractive way to litigate competing claims to land. In modern terms, to try title. Among other things, ejectment, like the other trespass writs, led to a trial before a jury. A defendant sued under an older writ of right could elect trial by battle. There was only one problem. Ejectment was only available to lessees. The result was one of the great legal fictions of the common law, the fictitious lessee. Today, the distinctions between trespass QCF and ejectment are far less significant, but not gone entirely. Courts can generally reach any legal issues necessary to resolve a case, regardless of the plaintiff's initial choice of cause of action, and they have far more freedom to select appropriate legal and equitable remedies, such as money damages for injuries to land or lost income from being out of possession injunctions to order a defendant to cease trespassing or execute a conveyance to the plaintiff, 
or declaratory judgments about the state of title. One remaining issue in the common law system was that both trespass and ejectment required some interference with possession. The action to quiet title provides a remedy here. It is brought by a plaintiff objecting that another's claims amount to a cloud on her title. Other claimants must either defend and prove their competing title or be stopped from asserting them. Quiet title, for example, is typically the appropriate cause of action to establish that one has acquired title to land through adverse possession or that an easement has been abandoned through non-use or that a deed sitting in the land records is void as a forgery. Although frequently quiet title actions are brought in personum against a specific claimant, state statutes can authorize in rem quiet title actions that extinguish the rights of all parties, known and unknown, unless they appear to defend their claims. Particularly in view of the long-standing CITUS rule, giving state courts exclusive jurisdiction over land located within their states, the in-rem quiet title action probably survives the Supreme Court's 20th century due process revolution. Originally, the assize of nuisance protected plaintiffs' rights to use land they did not themselves own such as a right to pasture cows on another's land, much like a modern easement, or to be free from some specific harms caused by a neighbor, such as straying cows. In the 14th century, plaintiffs began to be able to use writs of trespass to allege a nuisance without needing to plead that the defendant had acted v. et armis and this new formula developed into a general action for what we would today recognize as nuisance, that is, unreasonable interferences with the use and enjoyment of land. Nuisance was thus an action on the case. It belonged to the same branch of non-forcible trespasses as the one from which the modern tort of negligence developed. In keeping with its origins in actions on the case, nuisance has become an extremely versatile cause of action, encompassing a variety of injuries to interests in real property and a variety of potential remedies for those injuries. Trespass is also a crime, but it is a mild one. Now moving to personal property. One of the early variants of writs for forcible trespass, trespass de bonus asportatis, literally of taking away goods, and often abbreviated to trespass db 
A was available when the defendant carried away the plaintiff's property and its remedy was damages. But beyond this simple core, the personal property actions were confusing, were without easy description, and it took many centuries to clean up. The hard part was to determine just what kinds of facts ought to entitle a plaintiff to recover when he could not allege a taking from his possession. Perhaps because he had voluntarily parted with possession. For example, in a bailment, which is a temporary voluntary transfer of possession of personal property. Or perhaps because the defendant had not taken them. For example, for found property. One approach was the older writ of Détenue, which was available against a bailee, the party who receives possession in a bailment, who detained the goods from the plaintiff bailer. The courts extended Détenue so that it ran against other parties. At first, the executor of the estate of a deceased bailee and then anyone, as long as there had been an initial bailment. But since a defendant could defeat Détenue by disproving the allegations in the writ, Détenue was only really safe when the plaintiff could trace with confidence the chain from his hands to the defendant's. As a result, Détenue, on a bailment, was gradually supplanted by Détenue sur Trover, literally upon finding. The plaintiff alleged that he had lost the property and the defendant had found it but refused to return it. The defendant could show that he had the property rightfully, that is, through a sale tracing back to the plaintiff. But otherwise, lost and found was a conveniently broad formula that could cover actual cases of missing property, bailments gone wrong, and even cases of suspected theft. All the plaintiff needed to show was that the property was his and that the defendant now had it. Even so, Détenue, in its Trover variation, still was frequently unsatisfactory. The solution was in trespass. The royal courts had no difficulty treating theft as satisfying the requirement of trespass DBA, that the taking be forcible. But plaintiffs soon started pleading claims of trespass DBA for injuries to horses against defendants and claims for the forcible chopping up of lumber against defendants described as carpenters. These were basic contract actions for defectively shoeing a horse or for botching a construction job or would have been if the common law had had an effective form of action for breach of contract. It didn't, and so plaintiffs stretched the facts to fit within trespass DBA. 
The royal courts solved this particular problem around 1350 by abandoning the need to plead v et armis in trespass. As long as the plaintiff could set forth in more detail the special facts entitling him to recover. This was the origin of actions on the case. It had the effect of kickstarting a burst of creative experimentation with new variations of trespass. One approach, reflecting Bailman's place in the border between property and contract, was to plead that the defendant had negligently or deceitfully violated a promise to keep the goods safe. Another was to plead that the bailee had intentionally converted goods to his own use. By the 16th century, trespass on the case for conversion was regularly used against bailees. Then history repeated itself. Just as Détinoué was extended from bailees to third parties by alleging the fictitious finding called Trover, so was conversion. A plaintiff could even plead that he had lost his ship and that the defendant had found it in London. The final stage in conversion's triumph was to treat a wrongful withholding itself, the old Détinoué, as a form of conversion to the defendant's own use. And with that, the modern tort of conversion or trover took shape. The plaintiff claimed that the property was his and that the defendant had treated it as his own. The defendant might still have the property or might not. The property might still exist or it might have been destroyed. What mattered was the defendant's use in a manner inconsistent with the plaintiff's ownership, resulting in the plaintiff's dispossession. As the restatement second of torts puts it, conversion is an intentional exercise of dominion or control over a chattel which so seriously interferes with the right of another to control it that the actor may justly be required to pay the other the full value of the chattel. What if the defendant merely damages the plaintiff's property or interferes with its use, but stops short of converting it? Conversion traditionally did not quite work here. Instead, the plaintiff's remedy lay in trespass to chattels, which evolved from the original action for trespass DBA. Its use in a case of forcible misuse was straightforward. Over time, courts extended its use to other cases involving indirect or non-forcible harms. But unlike with trespass to land, the restatement says that trespass to chattels requires that the defendant deprive the plaintiff of possession, impair the value of the property or deprive the plaintiff of its use. A final member of the property torts family is replevin. Initially, it was a purely feudal form of action. If a tenant failed to perform 
the feudal services due to his lord. The lord could distrain the tenant's personal property by taking possession of it. The tenant's remedy for a wrongful distraint was replevin. By posting a bond of twice the value of the property, the tenant was entitled to possession immediately while the suit over the underlying dispute proceeded. As the feudal character dropped out of the landlord-tenant relationship, replevin became a general purpose action to recover possession of property wrongfully withheld. Its immediate recovery remedy made it attractive to plaintiffs who just wanted their items back, particularly in the United States. Today, in some states, it remains at least the name of the action to recover possession, although it has often been superseded by procedures to recover possession in state civil procedure codes. Now moving to found and stolen property. In the case of Armory versus Delamarie, the case states as follows. The plaintiff, being a chimney sweeper's boy, found a jewel and carried it to the defendant's shop, who was a goldsmith, to know what it was and delivered it into the hands of the apprentice, who under apprentice of weighing it, took out the stones, and calling to the master to let him know it came to three halfpence. The master offered the boy the money, who refused to take it, and insisted to have the thing again. Whereupon the apprentice delivered him back the socket without the stones, And now, in Trover against the Master, these points were ruled. 1. That the finder of a jewel, though he does not by such finding acquire an absolute property or ownership, yet he has such a property as will enable him to keep it against all but the rightful owner, and consequently may maintain Trover. 2 that the action well lay against the master, who gives a credit to his apprentice, and is answerable for his neglect. And three, as to the value of the jewel, several of the trade were examined to prove what a jewel of the finest water and would fit the socket would be worth. And the chief justice directed the jury that unless the defendant did produce the jewel and shew it, not to be of the finest water. They should presume the strongest against him and make the value of the best jewels the measure of their damages, which they accordingly did. One way of describing the holding of armory is that it sets out the rights of finders. A second way of describing the holding of armory is that it illustrates relativity of title. As between the plaintiff and the defendant, the party with the relatively better claim to title wins, even if their title is in some sense defective in an absolute sense. Relativity of title is intimately connected to the idea of chains of title. Competing claimants to a piece of property 
each do their best to trace their claims back to a rightful source. A third way of describing the holding of armory is that it rejects the jeweler's attempt to assert a jus terti, Latin for right of a third party defense. The defendant cannot defeat the plaintiff's otherwise valid claim to the jewel by arguing that a third party has an even better claim. Now let's consider three 19th century cases about lost lumber. In Clark v. Maloney, the plaintiff found ten logs floating in a bay after a storm. He tied them up in the mouth of a creek, but they apparently got free again, and the defendants apparently found them floating up the creek. Held, the plaintiff was entitled to the logs, stating, quote, Possession is certainly prima facie evidence of property. It is called prima facie evidence because it may be rebutted by evidence of better title. But in the absence of better title, it is as effective a support of title as the most conclusive evidence could be. It is for this reason that the finder of a chattel, though he does not acquire an absolute property in it, yet has such a property as will enable him to keep it against all but the rightful owner. It follows, therefore, that as the plaintiff has shown a special property in these logs, which he never abandoned, and which enable him to keep them against all the world but the rightful owner, he is entitled to a verdict. In Anderson versus Goldberg, the defendants took 93 logs from the plaintiff's mill. The defendants claimed that the plaintiff had cut the logs on their land, but the plaintiff replied and the jury agreed that he had actually cut the logs by trespassing on the land of a third party. It was held that the plaintiff was entitled to the logs. Stating, quote, Therefore, the only question is whether bare possession of property, though wrongfully obtained, is sufficient title to enable the party enjoying it to maintain replevin against a mere stranger who takes it from him. We had supposed that this was settled in the affirmative as long ago, at least as the early case of Amory versus Delamarie, so often cited on that point. When it is said that to maintain replevin, the plaintiff's possession must have been lawful, it means merely that it must have been lawful as against the person who deprived him of it. And possession is good title against all the world except those having a better title. Counsel says that possession only raises a presumption of title, which, however, may be rebutted. Rightly understood, this is correct, but counsel misapplies it. One who takes property from the possession of another can only rebut this presumption by showing a superior title in himself or in some way connecting himself with one who has. One who has acquired the possession of property 
whether by finding, bailment, or by mere tort, has a right to retain that possession as against a mere wrongdoer who is a stranger to the property. Any other rule would lead to an endless series of unlawful seizures and reprisals in every case where property had once passed out of the possession of the rightful owner. End quote. Anderson states what is overwhelmingly the majority rule. Seven years after Anderson, North Carolina took the opposite course. In Russell versus Hill, two different people held what appeared to be state grants to the same tract of land. And the plaintiff cut timber on the land with the wrong person's permission. While the logs were floating in a river, the defendants, unconnected with either of the purported landowners, took them away and sold them. It was held that the defendants were entitled to the logs, stating, quote, In some of the English books and some of the reports of our sister states, cases might be found to the contrary, but that those cases were all founded upon a misapprehension of the principle laid down in the case of Armory versus Delamarie. There a chimney sweep found a lost jewel. He took it into his possession, as he had a right to do, and was the owner, because of having it in possession, unless the true owner should become known. That owner was not known, and it was properly decided that Trover would lie in favor of the finder against the defendant, to whom he had handed it for inspection, and who refused to restore it. But the court said the case would have been very different if the owner had been known. Unquote. The court also expressed concern about the defendant's potential liability to the true owner, stating, quote, It is true that, as possession is the strongest evidence of the ownership, property may be presumed from possession. But if it appears on the trial that the plaintiff, although in possession, is not in fact the owner, the presumption of title inferred from this possession is rebutted, and it would be manifestly wrong to allow the plaintiff to recover the value of the property. For the real owner may forthwith bring Trover against the defendant and force him to pay the value the second time and the fact that he paid it in a former suit would be no defense. Consequently, Trover can never be maintained unless a satisfaction of the judgment will have the effect of vesting a good title in the defendant. End quote. Now moving to McAvoy versus Medina. This is in 1866. The case stated, quote, it appeared that the defendant was a barber, and the plaintiff, being a customer in the defendant's shop, saw and took up a pocketbook which was lying upon a table there, and said, See what I have found. The defendant came to the table and asked where he found it. The plaintiff laid it back in the same place and said, I found it right here. 
The defendant then took it and counted the money, and the plaintiff told him to keep it, and if the owner should come, to give it to him, and otherwise to advertise it, which the defendant promised to do. Subsequently, the plaintiff made three demands for the money, and the defendant never claimed to hold the same till the last demand. It was agreed that the pocketbook was placed upon the table by a transient customer of the defendant and accidentally left there and was first seen and taken up by the plaintiff and that the owner had not been found. Continuing, it seems to be the settled law that the finder of lost property has a valid claim to the same against all the world except the true owner, and generally that the place in which it is found creates no exception to this rule. But this property is not, under the circumstances, to be treated as lost property in that sense, in which a finder has a valid claim to hold the same until called for by the true owner. This property was voluntarily placed upon a table in the defendant's shop by a customer of his who accidentally left the same there. The plaintiff also came there as a customer and first saw the same and took it up from the table. The plaintiff did not buy this, acquire the right to take the property from the shop, but it was rather the duty of the defendant, when the fact became thus known to him, to use reasonable care for the safekeeping of the same until the owner should call for it. In view of the facts of this case, the plaintiff acquired no original right to the property, and the defendant's subsequent acts in receiving and holding the property in the manner he did does not create any. End quote. In addition to mislaid property, there's also abandoned property, or property which the owner has voluntarily relinquished with no intent to reclaim. Since abandoned property is again unowned, the usual rules of first possession apply. Another category sometimes mentioned in the found property case law is treasure trove. That is money, gold, or silver intentionally placed underground, which is found long enough later that it is likely the owner is dead or will never return for it. At common law in England, treasure trove belonged to the king. Most American states now treat treasure trove like any other found property. Now moving to adverse possession. Adverse possession enables a non-owner to gain title to land after the expiration of the statute of limitations for the owner to recover possession. Historically, the doctrine has performed and continues to serve important functions. The basic requirements, if not their wording and application, are common from state to state. As one treatise summarizes, an adverse possessor must prove possession that is, one, hostile, perhaps under a claim of right, two, exclusive, three, open and notorious, four, actual, and five, continuous for the requisite statutory period. 
states routinely add to the list. California law, for example, requires that the claimant must prove, one, possession under claim of right or color of title, two, actual, open, and notorious occupation of the premises constituting reasonable notice to the true owner, three, possession which is adverse and hostile to the true owner, four, continuous possession for at least five years, and five, payment of all taxes assessed against the property during the five-year period. Now moving to hostility and intent. Adverse possession requires possession that is hostile and often under a claim of right. Hostility is not animosity. Hostile possession can be understood as possession that is opposed and antagonistic to all other claims, and that conveys the clear message that the possessor intends to possess the land as his or her own. This is from Powell on Real Property, section 91.01. The requirement thus prevents permissive occupancy from ripening into ownership. A lesser need not worry that the tenant will claim title by adverse possession. A claim of right, sometimes called claim of title, means that the possessor is holding the property as an owner would. This could be seen as synonymous with the hostility requirement, but not all jurisdictions treat the concept this way. The Powell Treatise states that the predominant view in the United States is that good faith is not required for adverse possession. Now moving to the finer points of adverse possession. 1. Actual and continuous possession. Adverse possessors are not required to live on the occupied property. What matters is acting like a true owner would. That use, however, must be continuous, not sporadic. Regular use of a summer home may constitute continuous use. 2. Color of title. Claim of title, an intent to use land as one's own, is distinct from color of title, which describes taking possession under a defective instrument, like a deed based on a mistaken land survey. States often apply more lenient adverse possession standards to claims made under color of title. Entry under color of title may also affect the scope of the land treated as occupied by the adverse possessor. 3. Adverse possession by and against the government. Although government agencies may acquire title by adverse possession, the general rule is that public property held for public use is not subject to the doctrine. And 4. Disabilities. The title owner of land may be subject to a disability, that is, status as a minor, that may extend the time to bring an ejectment action against an unlawful occupant. States generally spell out such exceptions by statute. Now moving to improvers and good faith purchasers. The rule of accession provided that someone who sufficiently approves another person's property is allowed to keep it. Importantly, 
The Hornbook rule is that a session only operates in favor of good faith improvers. Someone who knows the property is not hers acts on her own peril while she combines it with her own property or labor. Another doctrine protects good faith purchasers for value from the unknown claims of third parties. It too only protects parties who act in good faith, that is, those who do not know or have reason to know they are buying property with clouded title. The common law baseline is nemo dat quod non habit. No man can give what he does not have. If I give you a car I don't own, you don't own it either. If I sell you a tract of land encumbered by a mortgage and an easement, you receive only as much as I owned. So you take the land subject to the mortgage and the easement. This nemo dat baseline is the source of the maxim that a thief cannot give good title. And finally, bailments and liens. We have seen numerous cases in which a possessor is not the true owner according to the law. There are more. The property could have been entrusted by the owner to the possessor. This is called a bailment. Note that the owner-entruster is the bailor, and the temporary possessor is the bailee. Common baileys include delivery services, dry cleaners, and friends who borrow each other's casebooks. Or perhaps the property is owned by the possessor, but subject to a security interest held by a third party. Car loans are a familiar class of these liens. The bank has a right to repossess the car if the buyer fails to make payments on time. Sometimes the two go together. A pawn shop, for example, is both a bailee and lien holder. It has possession of the pawner's items and a lien against it, which it uses to secure the loan it makes to the pawnor. These arrangements, all of which split full ownership from physical possession, systematically raise the same kinds of issues. First, there is the question of the duties between the possessor and the party out of possession. Baileys have a duty to return the property, and secured creditors can satisfy unpaid debts by taking ownership of the property. Second, there is the question of which of the parties has enough of an interest in the property to sue if some third party steals or damages it. Third, there is the difficult problem of protecting the legitimate expectations of third parties dealing with a person in possession of property who may or may not be its full owner. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.